The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. A peroration in rhetoric is a certain kind of conclusion to a speech. In oratory, a peroration is when you end with a rousing or stirring call to action. My favorite in world history was June 10th, June 4th, 1940, Winston Churchill speaking to the House of Commons in the UK. And he's trying to spend his speech convincing them not to surrender to Hitler. And he spends a long time trying to make that case. But then at the end, he begins his peroration. And this is the part you might remember. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. At that day, the House of Commons voted to do what seemed implausible just hours ago, to declare war and refuse to surrender. And yet the peroration we're going to read in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 today, is infinitely more urgent. This morning's text is far more serious than any other warfare we face. And in it, Paul pivots to stir us to see the rousing war in which we are. So I'm going to give away the farm this morning. I'm going to give away the sermon up front. Here it is, okay? In one sentence, here's the sermon. We are in a war, and victory is only assured in Jesus. Okay? We are in a war, and victory is only assured in Jesus. And I believe Paul makes this point a few different ways. So here are the notes. They're different from the bulletin because I rewrote these late last night. First, he says, be strong in the Lord's strength. Verse 10. And then you would say, well, well, how? How can I be strong in the Lord's strength? Second, by putting on his whole armor. But then Paul sort of pauses in verse 11 as if he's anticipating you'll still say, but why do I need the Lord's armor? And then he'll spend verses 12 through 13 making this point. The whole armor is given so that we can stand against an enemy beyond our strength. And then he'll come back in verses 14 through 17 to what it practically means to wear the whole armor. So this text tells us we are in a war and victory is only assured in Jesus. But before we get into the text, I want to deal with a couple objections that friends of mine have made and perhaps you have this morning. I can understand why in our current climate, 2,000 years later, the very sense of military metaphors makes people uneasy. So let me take a couple moments on that. Let me first admit that there is a wrong kind of professed Christianity that has sort of an us-versus-them combativeness that's pugnacious and sometimes unnecessary and unbiblical. So there is sort of a jingoism that uses the name of Jesus, but actually it's just much more combative than it is Christ-like. In worst-case scenario in history, think of the Crusades. But in more recent history, think of people who use the name of Jesus, but really all they want to do is make political advancements for their partisan goals. That sadly causes us to mute passages like this one, which are real and which are important. So this passage, yes, does call for a serious alarm and for battle. 
But there are some times when an alarm is necessary, like when a hurricane is coming or when a house is on fire. And Paul ends with a stirring call to battle because there is real evil. Life isn't a picnic in this world. And there is an enemy who does want to destroy souls eternally. There's another thing that makes this passage a little difficult for us. We have 2,000 years of advanced modern warfare. We read here a story about people having a breastplate and having shoes. And we're like, don't we have drones that do that stuff? You know. But remember, the pictures are not only tied to the first century, but they're preserved from the first century because this is hand-to-hand combat. Here's what I'm saying. Why did God breathe it out in the first century rather than the 21st century? And the answer is because the battle is always personal. It's always personal. That's why it's written this way. All right, so one more kind of reaction to those who would say, Josh, why these militaristic metaphors? Isn't Jesus the one who said, turn the other cheek? Shouldn't Christianity be most known for peace rather than for battle? Four quick answers on that. First, yes, praise God that at the end of the story, plowshares are made out of weapons. So the end of the story is peace. Jesus ushers in perfect harmony when heaven and earth are one. And Ephesians 1 has told us that. In fact, even in today's passage, you'll notice the the armor is primarily defensive. It's not meant to look for battle. But... The prophecy of what Jesus will fulfill in the future doesn't overturn the fact that in the present, there is an enemy who seeks us even if we don't desire to engage him. And the evil that will be eradicated is promised by a warrior king who first chose to bear our evil and experience our death on a cross. So the evil is so serious that God the Son himself came to endure it so that it could be overcome. But the fourth thing I'd want to remind us of about the evil that people feel uncomfortable with is I actually think our dismissal of battle imagery shows how successful Satan has been. It's true that in many places around the world and in many centuries, the church has known very tangible persecution. But I believe in our time and place, Satan's successful strategy, and my hat's off to him for how well he's done with it, is to lull us into thinking he's not dangerous and he may not even exist. If you've never read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, they're worth reading for his insight into this. Screwtape speaks to Wormwood, who is a new demon, and tells him this. A moderated religion is as good for us as demons as no religion at all, and it's more amusing. (laughs) See, if you have a kind of religion that is just temperate and easily tolerable in our culture, that's exactly the kind he wants you to have. One more time, I'll quote the screw tape letters. The more mature demon said to the younger one, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. This morning's text is meant to be a signpost. It's meant to rouse us to action. There's a real enemy. And so I'll say the sentence again. We are in a war, and victory is only assured in Jesus. Now look in verse 10 of Ephesians 6. 
And here's the first thing that he tells us. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, please turn to page 1163. The title of today's sermon is The Whole Armor of God. You'll want the text open because I am going to ask you to turn a couple pages once or twice. So please have the Bible open to Ephesians 6, page 1163, if you're using a pew Bible. Here's the first way he lets us know that we're in a war and victory is only assured in Jesus. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So here this morning, the only strength is the Lord's strength. Be strong is a passive verb saying that it must be the Lord who gives us the strength. We do not have the strength inside ourselves. The only strength that can survive this war is the strength that comes from the Lord. So then how do we put it on? We put on the whole armor of God. So here's some things I want to make sure we notice right up front. This passage is not self-directed. It is Christ-directed. It does not say dig deep. Actually, it says the opposite. Be strong in the Lord. Let me show you why. We're only going to flip a couple times. Can you flip back to chapter 1 of Ephesians? Flip back, please, to chapter 1. I want you to see why it's Jesus is strength that you need. Ephesians 1, let's pick up in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 1. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then we're going to see words that we see in our text today. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's the demonic forces. Above every name that is to be named. Not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So Christ is the victor who has defeated death and Satan and the demonic forces in his death and resurrection. That means that our only hope is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It also means that he's defeated the enemy against which we now engage. Here's why that's so encouraging. Because it means that our battle on a daily basis is never hopeless. Because our battle on a daily basis does not secure the final outcome. The final outcome was secured on Calvary by Christ. But on a daily basis... He empowers us by his spirit. Flip now to chapter 3. This is the second time he's talked about the power that we need and how we get it. So first he said we get that power because Jesus already exercised it. He defeated the enemy. But now we access it in the present on a daily basis by the spirit. So Ephesians 3 verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, and don't miss this, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the power comes through the spirit. But notice what ignites this power, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. So we're rooted and grounded and we have strength to comprehend the love of Christ which passes height and depth and length and width. So Christian, our hope is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Our power 
is from grasping his love as the Spirit of God puts his power at work in our present day. And so that leads us now to verse 11. How am I strong in the Lord and his strength rather than attempting to find my own? Verse 11, I have to be humble enough in faith to put on the whole armor of God. It's actually interesting in English. um, Be strong and put on are the same Greek word. You can't see it in English because they look so different. But be strong and put on are the same Greek word. They're both saying the same thing. I'm strengthened by putting on the armor of Christ. The difference is be strengthened is passive and put on is middle voice, which means I need to go to Christ in humble faith. Desperate enough to say, Lord, I need what you have. So Christian, here's my first question for you this morning. Are you desperate enough to go to Christ? Are you desperate enough to go to Christ as a believer over and over for his armor? Lord, I'm susceptible. Lord, I'm weak. Lord, I can lose. Lord, I can be attacked. Lord, I can be wounded. Please help me, Christ. Please clothe me, Christ. Please protect me, Jesus. We see, we need the armor so badly because these are instruments to the grace that only Christ provides. And that's why the end of verse 11 into verse 13 tells us how badly we need the armor. So if you're a note taker, we're now already at the whole armor is given so that we can stand against an enemy beyond our strength. So let's continue in verse 11. You need this armor so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you see what Paul is telling us? You must know your enemy or you will not avail yourself to the armor. You must know your enemy. So let me give you four don'ts about the enemy. Four don'ts about the enemy. Here's don't number one. Number one, don't mistake our enemy. Don't mistake our enemy. Our battle is not with other people. Surely not ultimately. Our our enemy is not flesh and blood. Here's how I'd like to say it. It's, It's wrong on the one hand to say the devil made me do it, but it's wrong on the other hand to say the devil has nothing to do with it. He always has something to do with it. This is why we say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So even if someone in your life feels like they are a thorn in the flesh, you can know there's someone behind that person pushing and moving. Our battle is not ultimately with other people, which means by implication, our battle is not winnable by human resources. So if we plan to do human activism, we will lose the war. Because we are facing an enemy beyond our finite human resources. So don't mistake our enemy. But now number two, don't dismiss our enemy. We live in an interesting moment in our American culture because we still have a little bit of a post-enlightenment malaise that kind of laughs at the existence of the celestial. And yet at the same time, most of our pop culture is about the supernatural. (laughs) I don't know how those fit together. But Satan, I think, has succeeded in making us think that it's silly to believe that there are demonic forces. But this text reminds us there are. Don't dismiss them because you cannot see them. That's what makes them so dangerous. Third, don't tremble at your enemy. 
Don't tremble at your enemy. This is an enemy that Christ has dealt the death blow to. And this is an enemy that Ephesians 3, 10 through 12 says Christ will show his manifold wisdom over through the church. So don't tremble at the enemy. But now the fourth don't regarding the devil, fourth don't underestimate your enemy. If you've been thinking, Josh, I don't get it. If Jesus defeated him on the cross, then why is he dangerous now? But some of you who have served in the military know that the most dangerous enemy is a defeated enemy. Think of the history of our wars. I mean, once the death blow in effect is won at a key battle, then instead of giving up, normally the person who initiated the conflict is desperate and has no holds barred to the uh, the amount of attack that they give. So here, the Bible this morning, Christian, Satan can cripple Christians. Think of what Jesus told Peter in Luke 22. I have prayed for you so that Satan will not sift you like wheat. Now, do you remember the context of why Jesus said he was praying for him? Because Peter had just said, Jesus, I will never deny you. And then Jesus told him, um... You will thrice by the end of the evening. So actually, do you see the point? It's really important for you to catch. Why was Peter so vulnerable? Because pride causes us to overestimate our ability and underestimate our enemy. Jesus is saying, I have to pray for you because your pride has made you susceptible. Now, on the other side of the same idea, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, a messenger of Satan has been buffeting me with a thorn in the flesh. But then Paul responds the right way, and he says, this is from God so that he will teach me that in my weakness I am strong. Most gladly, therefore, will I boast when I am weak, because then the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Christian, don't underestimate your enemy. Pride will make you defeatable. Pride will make you think that you have it. But we don't. We must put on the whole armor of God. We must go to Christ because our enemy is deceitful. Do you see the word in verse 11 and 12, the schemes at the end of verse 11? What a great word, schemes. Indicates that the devil has malicious intent, but hidden motive. Snodgrass is a commentator who wrote this. Mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. Don't underestimate our enemy. But now I want you to see that the whole armor is given so that we can stand against an enemy beyond our strength. So look in verse 13. Therefore, take up. That's the first active verb in the whole section. Take up. Grab this. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm Verse 14, stand, therefore. 35 times in Ephesians, it is said something about living in Christ. To take up is to claim what you have in Christ. It's not to create the armor, it's to claim the armor. See, when Satan accuses us of our inadequacy, all we can do 
is boast in Jesus' sufficiency. To claim what he has. To call ourselves to trust in what he is. Did you notice the word repeated in verse 13 and in verse 14? Stand. Let me say five things about just that one word, about the word stand. I think these are things the text wants us to see. First, stand means, Christian, you are planted where you need to be. You are where you ought to be. Second means, stand means that the battle will come to you. You don't have to go seek it. Picture Helm's Deep and Lord of the Rings. You're already planted where you ought to be, and now all the forces come against you. Third, standing is sometimes the bravest thing you can do. In the year 1521, Martin Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X because he had written 95 theses. The, the strongest assertion that he made that he was being condemned for it was that you could be saved by faith alone. For making that claim, he was excommunicated from the church. And then famously, at the Dieta Worms, he was told to recant. If he recanted of his claims, he would live. If he refused to recant, he would be burned at the stake. Luther, a monk, had prepared with incredible difficulty and strenuous uh, emotional strain on him. And then he stood that day at the Dieta Worms, expecting to be burned at the stake for refusing to recant. And he said this. My conscience is captive to the word of God, thus I cannot and will not recant. Because acting against the conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Sometimes standing is the bravest thing you can do. Fourth, but standing has an impact. Standing has an impact. In 1955, Rosa Parks refused to move her seat, and it had an impact. And so it will if you stand where you ought to stand. Number five, standing is the victory. Charles Spurgeon said this, I dare say you'll think it's an easy thing to stand still, but it's one of the hardest postures a Christian soldier learns. I find that quick marching is much easier than standing still. We learn, we think, to stand still from human armies, but it's actually the most difficult thing to learn from the captain of our soul, the captain of our salvation. The apostle writes, stand fast, and having done all, stand still. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. He's right. So, we're in a war, and victory is only in Jesus. We can only be strong in his strength. We are only strong by wearing his armor. That alone allows us to withstand against the attack of our enemy. The enemy is beyond our strength. But now, in verses 14 through 17, he unpacks practically what it means to wear the whole armor of God. And as we get into it, I want to first draw out a couple things about the whole armor of God that I don't want us to miss once we go through it. These, I think, are very important. Here's why it's the whole armor of God. First, because every one of these attributes is prophesied about the Messiah in Isaiah. So if you're wondering, what is, why did he pick these six things? It's not really because of Roman outfits. It's because of Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah. But because Paul's a very good preacher, he shows what that might look like in his time and place. But don't miss this morning, the armor is Jesus Christ. 
It is the promised Messiah and what he is. Wearing all of it means you personally need all of him all the time. We need all of Jesus all the time. That's why we wear the whole armor. But the reason that it's armor has one more important impact. This is not just what you're promised, but what you need practically every day. It's not just a position that's bequeathed to you, but power for practical living. That's why it's armor. Let's look at the six pieces of armor now. So we continue in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And I'm going to try to be very practical with each one of these because I think they're meant to be very practical. First, the belt of truth. The belt of truth is the first step in putting on the armor. When you fasten on this, then you're ready to add the other pieces. Now that you know that, do you see how important it is to put on the belt of truth? Here's the point Paul is making. One of the ways Satan will defeat us is through apathy that isn't urgent enough to be armed. We're so apathetic that we don't think we need it. I read a book called Overcoming Apathy that Crossway produced this week. And in chapter one of of the book, the author argues that we live in a Seinfeldian society. What he means by that is the show about nothing has taught us not to care passionately about much of anything. Unless, of course, it's selective outrage over things of actual minimal importance. In the book, he gives an example of how Gap changed their logo and people lost their minds, right? But of things of real significance, it's like something doesn't fire within us. The zeal that's supposed to be there is just asleep. This is why the text begins with, put on the belt of truth. Because Satan lulls us to put our guard down. So I ask you again, friend, how urgent are you to go to Christ? Daily, weekly, hourly, Lord, I need you. I need you to protect me. I cannot survive. See, Isaiah told us in chapter 11, verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a promise of Christ gives. So number one, be ready with the belt of truth. Now number two, the second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, Isaiah 59 verse 17 says this is the breastplate of the righteousness of the Messiah to come, who we now know is Jesus. But just to make sure we're practical with it, I think the point is this. If the belt tells you you need to be prepared, the breastplate tells you that Satan will attack your heart. This is why Ephesians 4.23, sorry, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. So what is capturing your desires? What would you say, man, if I lost this, I couldn't live. What would you say, this is what I'm passionate about, this is what I'm excited about. There are many good things we can be excited about, but nothing as zealous as the beauty of Christ and our need for him. All right, now number three, the third piece of armor is the shoes of gospel feet. Look in verse 15. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This one threw me for a minute because I thought, why are we fastening shoes if we're just standing? 
And that's where a little historical background was helpful. Roman shoes had long nail-like spikes in the bottom of them. He's not telling you to put on shoes so that you'll go somewhere. He's telling you to put on shoes so you can stand where you are. So you can dig in to being in the right space. Isaiah 52, 7 alludes to this. But I want you to understand why this matters for you practically. Satan will attack the solidity of your footing. But what gives you solidity? Do you see it in verse 15? The gospel. John Owen has written more insightfully about sin and temptation than anyone probably in the last 500 years. But he's very difficult to read because he's a Puritan and he has more numerical points than I do in a given sermon. But I was reading him this week and here's what he wrote. It's so wise. A man thinks he can lay in store the provisions of the law. Fear of death, fear of hell, fear of punishment, the terror of the Lord. But these are easily conquered. It is the gospel provision that allows one to stand against a vigorous assault. So Owen very wisely says this, Store up in your hearts a sense of the love of God in Christ, of the eternal purpose of his grace, the savor of the blood of Christ, and in his love and shedding it, Get a taste for the privileges you have through Christ. Adoption, justification, acceptance with God. Fill your hearts with thought of the beauty of holiness, the effect that Jesus had in dying for us. And God will give you peace and security from the disturbance caused by temptations. What gives you solid footing? It's knowing that I have peace with God. I'm forgiven through Christ. No accusation can be levied against me that changes that I'm on the solid rock. The fourth piece of armor is the shield of faith. Look in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Depending on where your mind goes, maybe you're picturing a round shield. Don't picture that one. That's the wrong one. You have to picture that one, maybe you've seen descriptions of it, that one that's almost as tall as a person, goes head to toe, and you've seen the soldiers, they stand right next to each other, and they have the armor here, and they have the armor there. They're protecting everything. In fact, they would put animal skins doused with water on the outside of their shields so that when flaming darts would hit it, they would be extinguished. Why is Paul using this image of a shield that covers you? The answer is because Satan will attack you from every angle. Every conceivable angle. Again, I think John Owen is helpful when he says, do not flatter yourself that you can hold out. There are secret lusts that lie dormant, temporarily quiet, waiting for the opportunity of temptation. Take heed lest you fall is the idea. He will attack from every angle. And so from every angle he attacks, we must in faith Claim Jesus' sufficiency. Jesus' all-encompassing protection for my all-encompassing weakness. Now the fifth, the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. This is also from Isaiah. Isaiah 59, verse 17. The Messiah has a helmet of salvation on his head. Christians must recognize what they have. Think of Romans 6. 
Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Reckon or realize or come to grips with what you have in the saving power of Christ. This means, of course, that Satan will attack your mind. So you must renew it and be transformed by the promises of his word. And now after five defensive pieces of armor, Paul gives the only one that's offensive. And he uses a Greek word that indicates the short sword that you would poke out with, that you would parry with, that you might push away the person who's come to destroy you. So now look at the end of verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This means that Satan will not flee until you use Scripture. Satan will not retreat until the Spirit's breathed out truth is used to push him away. In fact, the Bible tells us that many times. 1 Peter 5, which we read earlier, resist him firm in your faith. James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you with the faith of truth. Now this passage, there's couple things I wanted to save till now. The first thing I want to point out to you is that all of the verbs are in the plural. So Paul is not saying, hey, individual Christian. No, he's saying church. Put on the whole armor of God. Church, take your stand. Church, be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In Ephesians 3, 10 through 12, he says it's through the church that Christ will show his manifold Wisdom. So let me say a couple thoughts uh, on behalf of our pastor elders for us as a church. First, I'd, I'd want to say God's word should always correct us. So may, may we be humble, teachable people that are constantly willing to be changed by the word of God. But now let me also say this side to you as one of your pastors this morning. When we are, though, standing with Christ and when we are standing where the Bible stands, then no matter what culture pushes, by God's grace, we're not moving. Because we have to stand against the enemy's advance, which means we cannot forsake our ground or capitulate to culture. So here are some responses for us this morning. The first, if you're here this morning and you're not clothed, come to Jesus for armor. If I'm to tell you what the Bible says about your position apart from the armor of God, here's what it is. You're not in danger to the enemy's attacks. You're deceased. Ephesians 2 says, apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins, following the prince of the power of the air. Listen, you need Jesus Christ because apart from him, you are dead spiritually. He has to give you life and only he can. But you might ask, well, Josh, why does Jesus need the armor? I mean, why is Isaiah prophesying about a Messiah who's going to wear armor? He's God. He doesn't need the armor. But don't you get it? This is the beauty of the gospel. God became flesh. God added humanity so that he could do what we needed. He defeated the devil. He resisted him. He pushed him away through scripture. He never sinned. He never failed. And then he took the death that our sins have accrued and emerged victoriously. Why does the Messiah have armor? So that he could win and then give his armor to us. So this morning, will you be desperate enough to put on his armor? Isn't it funny how 
we can have seasons where we start to think we don't need it. Picture King David who won so many battles for the Lord, but then hit this season of plateauing and believing, I've won my battles. I'll relax. But the armor is needed throughout our earthly sojourn, and so it must be taken up. So this week, God providentially made this vivid to me. Last night, I was reading to my kids a book that one of our friends at church gave us. One of our friends at church gave us a children's version of The Pilgrim's Progress, and it's been great reading it again. I'm reading it to my kids, and last night we read the key section, but I know some background that my kids probably don't know. I know historically about John Bunyan. John Bunyan was born 1628, we think. There's a little bit of debate historically. But in that time when he lived in England, it was an act of nonconformity to preach the gospel without official licensure from the state. King Charles II was king of England at that time. And so Bunyan believed firmly that everybody should be allowed to hear and tell the good news of Jesus' salvation. And so he shared it, and he was in prison for sharing the gospel. He was in prison for 12 and a half years straight. And during that time, he started writing the Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan had four children. His oldest daughter, Mary, was born blind. And Mary would visit John in prison. She would bring him soup, and she knew the way by heart, even though she couldn't see. Now, they would let him out of prison as long as he would promise to not publicly preach the gospel. But he refused to recant. And in his time in prison, his daughter Mary died. After 12 and a half years, he was released from prison because the act of uniformity in England kind of changed the law temporarily. Once again, though, he started preaching the gospel without official state licensure, and he was thrown back into prison. And that's actually when he finished A Pilgrim's Progress. Knowing all that in my head, last night I was reading to our kids the chapter where Christian goes to the palace beautiful and he is clothed with the armor of God. And the very next scene is he is attacked by Apollyon in the Valley of Humiliation. And John Bunyan made some insights that I noticed last night that I had never noticed before. The first thing that I noticed that was so interesting, there's this moment Christian is attacked by Apollyon and he wants to turn back and run. But then he remembers that he has no armor for his back. It's all frontward facing. That, what an insight from Bunyan. There is no turning back. You take your stand with Christ and that's it. Then you can't move. Also, Apollyon levels all of Christian's failures to him. And Christian says, what have I done wrong? And Apollyon lists with accuracy all the shortcomings that Christian has had since coming to Christ. And Christian rightly responds, you're right. And there's even more that you haven't shared. But I have a prince who has pardoned me and who is merciful. Though severely attacked, Christian tells Apollyon this, my king has given me everything I need to defeat you. Apollyon at this point is so angry. He's a dragon. He's this massive creature and he prepares to slay Christian, stands over him in dread. But then Christian quotes Micah 7, 8, O mine enemy, when I fall, I shall arise. And quotes Romans eight thirty seven. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And with that, Apollyon spreads his wings and flies away. 
when the battle is finished, Christian said this, I will give thanks to the king who has delivered me from my enemy's attacks. And he heard this voice from above. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. There is footing for you in Christ. There is a shield for you in Christ. There is a helmet of salvation for you in Christ. And there is even a sword to push away the enemy when he seems undefeatable. Christ has everything we need to withstand an enemy that we cannot survive in our own strength. Let us go to him in prayer. Oh God, wake us up. Wake us up from the apathy of our age. Stir us towards the battle that is around us and yet invisible until its effects crush us. May we not underestimate how serious Satan and his enemies are. Lord, we cannot win this battle unless we have Christ. But in Christ, we will win. We have won. And we can win moment by moment because he will give us strength. So Lord, we come to him in faith. Jesus, please give us what we stand in need of this morning to overcome what seems unconquerable. For with you, all things are possible. Jesus, please work what seems unworkable because we know, Lord, you have conquered death and Satan and risen from the dead. But Lord, humble us enough that we would put on the whole armor of God. And may we respond even through communion to remember Jesus and to realize what we have in him. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.